If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Quite a week in Leviticus, huh? I know that you are shocked that uh, I'm not going to preach tonight on Leviticus 15 or Leviticus 18 or a variety of other uh, somewhat shady passages in Leviticus that I am going to totally avoid tonight. You know, some people think and say that Leviticus is boring. I think we can safely disagree with that assertion. Like, yeah, there's a couple points where you can get bogged down, but on, on a whole, Leviticus really kind of keeps you on your toes as you're reading through. And uh, there are points where it's like, it's kind of TMI, a little too much information. Like, why is this in Scripture? And I want us to see why this is in Scripture tonight. So before we dive into Leviticus chapter 16, I want to I step back for just a second and think about where we've gone over the last couple of months, where we've, how we've come to this point, and where we're going to go over the next couple of months, really leading up to Easter. Remember why we're reading through the Bible like we're reading through it, in a chronological way, is because we want to see the whole story of Scripture. And so I want to constantly come back and show how each text we're looking at fits into the overall story of redemption. And so we started the beginning of this year, week one was prologue, the creation. And we saw how Genesis 1 through 11, those 11 chapters really set the stage for everything else to come in the Bible. And everything else that come in this story really goes back to what happens in Genesis 1 through 11. So we, we got this foundation here in the very beginning, prologue. And then we're kind of looking at this as a story book, basically, with chapters, parts. So part one, redemption, redemption promised to a covenant people. And the reason I titled it that way is because I want us to see that God has chosen to relate to his people through covenants. This is integral to understanding God's relationship to his people. It's what we've seen already when God says, and we'll see it other times throughout the rest of Scripture, I will be your God, you will be my people. God entering into relationship with his people. And we've seen up to this point really four pictures of covenant. Started with Adam, the covenant of creation. Now the word covenant is not actually used there in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but all the elements of covenant are there. God relating to his people through his promises for his purpose. And so we see that, that picture of God's relationship with his people, Adam and Eve, and then we see that marred with the fall of man, entrance of sin in the world in Genesis chapter 3. And, but even there, Genesis 3.15, we see this promise of redemption. So that's first picture. Second picture with Noah, the covenant of preservation. With This is the first time we see covenant, the word mentioned in Scripture, Genesis chapter 9, when God says, after the flood, I'm not going to do this again. I will not destroy the earth like this. I'm going to preserve a people for myself. And he this language of covenant between God and Noah. Then you get to Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17 with Abraham, covenant of promise. This is what we talked about. I was in India that week, some birds chirping in the background, and we walked through Genesis 12, 15, 17, a little monkey or something at the end when trying to pray. Uh, we saw God give promises to Abraham, Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob after him. I'm going to bless you bless your descendants, I'm going to bring you into a land, and you are going to be the channel of my blessing to all peoples. This is the forming of the people of Israel, Jacob, Israel. And so we see that lead us up into Exodus, where God 
comes to Moses, and we see this covenant, the covenant of law. It's what we've read about and talked about the last couple of weeks. When God brings his people to Mount Sinai, he reveals his glory to them, and he gives them his law. It's really what we're unpacking even here in Leviticus, because this happens at the foot of Mount Sinai. So we've seen four covenants. I want you to see this is how God is relating to his people, and I also want us to see that these covenants are building on one another. They're not nullifying or negating one after the other. It's not that, okay, now that God does this through Moses, that just is throwing everything he's done with Abraham out the window. It's building on each other. And we're going to see that. That's important because every time we're pointing to the New Testament, which remembers Testament, covenant, old covenant, new covenant, whenever we're pointing to Christ and the new covenant, it's not that Christ is coming on the scene and negating things that we've seen in the Old Testament. Instead, all the things in the, these things in the Old Testament are progressing and developing toward this fulfillment that comes in Christ and then what we see in the new creation. So that's where we're headed. And I want us to see these covenants in that context. That's for part one, redemption promised to a covenant people. Now this week, we're going to begin to kind of shift in the story. We're not going to see any new covenant for a while. We're going to see this picture of the Mosaic Covenant unfolding called part two, the law of the land. Because really there's, there's two facets we're going to see from now until Easter. First is the giving of the law, which is really what Leviticus is about here, the law of the priests, as well as Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is going to be a, uh, remembering the law. And then we're going to see the journey into the land. We're going to see God's people taking a journey into the land that he has promised them. And just as a preview, they are not going to take the most direct route into the land. And really those two are related because their obedience and or disobedience to the law has everything to do with what their journey into the land looks like. And so I want us to see this, this interaction between law and land over the next couple of weeks. Now that starts with Leviticus. And what I want us to look at is the center, really the theological center of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. This word atonement, $2 theological word, and you've got it at the top there, the wonder of atonement. Picture it as at-one-ment, at-one. And the reason I want to emphasize that, that, that's what the word means. It's what the concept represents, that this is how God's people are made one with him, reconciled to a relationship with him. And that's the question that Exodus left us with. Leviticus is just a continuation of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, we see this picture of God in his glory dwelling with his people. And it begs the question, how is that possible? How can a sinful people dwell in the presence of God? And Leviticus is going to help answer that question. And this is where I want us to realize that Leviticus has huge implications for your life in this room. Because the same question is necessary to ask in your life. Right where you are sitting, how in the world can you, in your sin, be in a relationship with God who is holy? And the answer that Leviticus gives has huge implications for how you, right where you are sitting, can or cannot relate to the God of the universe. So that brings this home to our lives. Atonement. What I want to do is we're going to read through Leviticus chapter 16. It's kind of long. 
Hopefully it's kind of reviewing what you've already read. What I want to do is I want to read through it. I want you to imagine these details. Just picture it. And do this. Every time you see the word atonement, circle it or underline it. I just want you to see how it is prevalent throughout this passage. So circle or underline atonement whenever you see it. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness." Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. 
And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Okay. What just happened? And why is that significant? What I want to show you in Leviticus chapter 16 and really in the whole book of Leviticus are four truths that I think, that I believe Leviticus 16 and the whole book (coughs) intend to ingrain in our hearts and our minds four incredibly important truths. Number one, God is holy. Yahweh is holy. In the book of Leviticus, over 90 times, holiness is mentioned. It's all over the book. The holiness of God, how God's people are intended to be a reflection of his holiness. The fact that, as we've talked about, he is perfectly pure, completely separate, utterly unique, other. He is Infinitely good, infinitely holy, infinitely honorable. We see that from the very beginning here in Leviticus 16 when the context takes us back to when Aaron's sons drew near before the Lord and died. Why? Because they did not treat God as holy. That's why they died. Go back to Leviticus chapter 10 real quick. That's the story of Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1 where Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, go into the most holy place, offer unauthorized fire, and listen to what happens. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, 
Listen to this. This is what the Lord says. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. What that means, I will be acknowledged as holy. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron, their father, held his peace. Here's implications of the fact that God is holy. You got this in your notes. We cannot be casual with God. Because he is holy, his holiness evokes a reverent, healthy, awe-inspiring fear in us. When you come into the presence of God, Leviticus is saying, you, you come into the presence of the Holy One, and you do not come casually or lightly. Now, I want to be really careful from here not to go directly to an application and us to think, so, okay, we've come into the presence of God tonight, so we don't need to come in casually, because that's really not the picture. We're not coming into the Holy of Holies tonight in the same way that they were in the Old Testament. We talked about this last week, but the truth is far, far deeper and greater for us here because of the realities we talked about last week. The very holy presence of God is dwelling in you, brothers and sisters. Christians in this room who possess the presence of a holy God, do not treat his presence lightly, casually. This is an awe-inspiring thing. This is a fear, healthy fear-evoking reality that should overwhelm us, that we should never grow cold or callous to. We cannot be casual with God. We must be contrite before God. This is the point. In the beginning here in Leviticus chapter 16, the Lord is saying to Moses, tell Aaron, this is how he's to come into my presence. And he prescribes that. Now go to the end of chapter 16, verse 29, when he's summing up the whole Day of Atonement picture. Listen to what it says. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, listen to the language here, God says, you shall afflict yourselves. Afflict yourselves. It says the same thing down in verse 31. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. You shall afflict yourselves. The word literally means to oppress yourself. Or to humble yourself. It's the same word that's used at the beginning of Exodus to describe how the people of God were under affliction in Egypt. The reality is that the holiness of God causes you and I to be humble before God. Broken before God. Acknowledging the reality that God is great. It's the, it's the picture of Old Testament worship that we do see at other points. It's Ezra on his face, hands spread before God saying, you are too great. I'm ashamed and disgraced to even look towards you. It's Isaiah in chapter 6, woe is me. Don't even deserve to be in your presence. And I think there is a word for us here, both in our lives as well as what it means for us to gather together in worship of this God because the reality is in our day, in what we oftentimes associate with worship, we oftentimes have a lot of room for celebration and great songs like we sang earlier where we're 
clapping, dancing, singing, that kind of picture, which there is a place for that. At the same time, there is also a place for brokenness and, and humility and weeping over sin in the presence of a holy God that we, that is foreign to us in our day. That we desperately need to recover. Because the reality is, if humility and brokenness do not have a place in our worship, then God does not have a place in our worship. God is holy. We cannot be casual with him. We must be contrite before him. Second truth, because God is holy, therefore sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. Now, Aaron's sons show us that pretty clearly. One time, going in the presence of God unauthorized, struck dead. Think about the whole picture of the book of Leviticus, though. And think about our, first of all, our propensity to sin is strong. Leviticus shows us this. Think about the way it is structured. Up to this point in chapter 16, we have had chapter after chapter after chapter that describe sacrifices. It's like a calendar, a schedule of sacrifices. And then right after this, 17 through 27, what we see is a picture of God giving laws, civic moral laws to follow. Isn't it interesting that before he even gives the laws, he gives them a bunch of sacrifices because the reality is they're going to break the laws. It's a given. There is a propensity to sin, to disobey the law of God. And so there is a necessity for over half of this book to be consumed with sacrifices. And the reality that Leviticus shows us, this picture of intentional, unintentional sins. Sin is not just something we do here or there. Sin is at the core of our being. We are born with a nature that rebels against God. God that turns away from his law. All of us are. Our propensity, we are prone to sin. Don't you hate that? Leviticus shows us we are prone to sin. And not just our propensity to sin is strong, but Leviticus shows us very clearly that the punishment for sin is severe. Didn't we see, don't we see this all over the book of Leviticus? Not just Aaron's sons. What about adultery? What's the payment for adultery in Leviticus? Death. Starts a whole list of payment for this, payment for this, payment for this. It's death, 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 death. You get to Leviticus chapter 24. And one man, one time, blasphemes the name of the Lord. What do we do with him? Stone him. Stone him. Speak against, blaspheme the name of the Lord. We must stone him. God says stone him. And we read that and we think, is that overly severe? And it's not just here in Leviticus. It's, it's all over the Old Testament. It's Lot's wife looks back and dies immediately. Backward glance, pillar of salt. Just like that. We get to Numbers. 
the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a guy who is picking up sticks on the Sabbath one day. And he is stoned for it. Stoned for picking up sticks. Later in the Old Testament, when we see the people of God transporting the Ark of the Covenant in a way they were not supposed to be, and it is about to fall, and so one man reaches out to grab it, to keep it from falling, and when he touches it, he is immediately struck dead. You say, yeah, those are some weird stories in the Old Testament. It's New Testament too. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Try to be deceptive of the offering you give in church. You're going to die. Huh. It's not good church growth methodology. People start dying when we start passing the basket at the end. Like, people are coming back to Brook Hills if this happens. Don't you, don't you wonder, you may not say it out loud, but don't you think, doesn't that seem a little overly severe? Stoning for picking up sticks, a lie, struck dead on the spot. And we think that. The reason we think that is overly severe is because we have a man-centered perspective of sin. And we think, well, if you were to speak something evil against me, you don't deserve death for that. And you don't. If you were to, to disobey something that someone told you to do, you don't deserve death for that. But this is where we realize that severity of sin is not determined by the action in and of itself, the severity of sin is determined by the one who is sinned against. Think about it. If you sin against a rock, you're not very guilty. If you sin against a man, you are guilty. You sin against God, you are infinitely guilty. Infinitely guilty of dishonor because he is infinitely honorable. Think about it. That's the story we've seen from the beginning. One sin in Genesis 3. One sin. And Romans 5 says condemnation comes to all men. One sin. One sin started the whole picture. All that we see evil, moral and natural evil in the world, all goes back to one sin. They ate a piece of fruit and their disobedience and pride and as a result, World wars and holocaust and earthquakes and tsunamis and terrorism and disease and cancer. All from one sin. And you and I in this room have committed thousands of them. And Leviticus is clear. The payment for one sin is what? It's death. Eternal death, infinite death, because you have sinned against an infinitely holy God. God is holy, sin is deadly. I, I pray that in this community of faith, 
in the lives that are represented in this room that one of the fruits of reading through Leviticus, one of the fruits of even our time together tonight would be that you and I walk away from this place hating sin more than when we got here and realizing the severity of sin more than when we got here. Cornelius Flandinger wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and he wrote, The Awareness of Sin, a deep awareness of disobedience and painful confession of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our forefathers agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder if he could still go to Holy Communion A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. He continued, that shadow has dimmed. Nowadays the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt the people of God. God help us to realize the deadly nature of the smallest sin we are confronted and tempted with this week. God help us to hate it and to see that one sin deserves infinite wrath. Now that sets the stage for truth number three. If God is holy and sin is deadly and we are trying to see how sinful man can dwell with a holy God, then truth number three now makes sense. Sacrifice is necessary. Sacrifice is necessary. Now the key here, go over to Leviticus chapter 17 with me real quick and verse 11. If this verse is not underlined in your Bible, let me encourage you to underline it because this is the key. When you were reading through Leviticus, did you not wonder why is there blood being splattered everywhere? Sprinkle blood here, throw blood there. Why? Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 is the key to understanding why. Look at what it says. For the life of the flesh is in the what? The blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So blood represents life. When a sacrifice is made, when blood is shed, that therefore represents what? Death. And so the picture is, If sin is deadly and deserves death and God is holy for his holiness and his justice to reign, then response to sin will always include death. And so the picture, whenever we see blood in the book of Leviticus, is we see a picture of a sacrifice that shows that the payment for sin has been doled out. Death has occurred And what it is, it's a picture of a sacrifice who experiences death instead of the sinner. So that sets the stage for what the Day of Atonement is all about. The provision in the Old Testament here was an annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, it's called in later Old Testament history, just the day. I mean, this is the day when it is made possible for God's people to be in God's presence. What happens on that day? A few elements. First, a priest entering an earthly sanctuary. The high priest entering the tabernacle. You remember how the tabernacle was set up? Outer court, 
holy place, and a veil, a curtain, separated the most holy place, the holy of holies. And after Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, the people of Israel were altogether fine with one person going into the holy of holies on the behalf of everybody else. And he was altogether fine with doing it one time a year. And so the picture was the priest, the high priest, would put on these linen garments, simple garments, different even from normal high priestly garb, even regular priest's garb. A picture of humility in the presence of God. Very plain. Take a good bath, buddy. Get clean. Put on the garments, these holy garments to reflect the holiness of God. Go in humbly. And we find out later that they would... And would put bells in the hem of the garment so that, and we've talked about this before, so that when the high priest went into the most holy place, and tradition said a, a rope tied around his ankle that stretched outside, so that when he walked in, as long as the bells were making music, then things were going well. But when the bells stopped, then clearly so had he. And if he stopped, the last thing you want to do is go in after him. And so you pull with the rope. Like, can you imagine that scene? Like you're standing outside the tent of meeting in total silence, listening to the tangling of these bells, wondering if... if he is going to come out from the presence of God. Reverence and awe of the holiness of God. And so the, the priest would go into the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, with, second element, the blood of a spotless animal. Really three animals involved here. Bull and two goats. The bull that will be sacrificed to atone for the priest's sins because the priest is a sinner himself. And then the two goats, one of which will live, one of which will not. And the goat that is sacrificed will be taken in. And so the picture is, priest will go in with the blood of the bull for himself, goat on behalf of all the people in the community of Israel. And the picture is incense to create. I mean, the picture is he cannot gaze on the presence of God. Pictured in, remember, the Ark of the Testimony, which contained the law of God. And over it, a picture of golden cherubim and presence of God enthroned above his law between the cherubim. And so the picture is he comes in with the blood of the bull, the goat, for the people. And he is to sprinkle it over the, the lid, the atonement cover. It's called the mercy seat, but it's really not a seat. Like, you don't sit down. The priest goes in and gets back out as quick as possible. Like, don't hang around, take some pictures, send a couple tweets, and let people know what's going on. Like, you don't do that. You get in and out. And so, he's to go in and Sprinkle blood over the mercy seat, the atonement cover. Why? And here's the picture. The 
presence of God in his holiness enthroned above his law. As the presence of God looks upon his law, it is broken by Israel. The people have not followed it. So the picture is God saw the sins of Israel. Sins, sin as we talked about that deserves death. And so the picture is in God's holiness and justice, law broken, wrath poured out on lawbreakers. And so the priest would sprinkle blood over the atonement cover as a picture of the fact that death occurred. And what happens is the whole picture of this thing is God seeing the sins of Israel and instead of pouring out his wrath on his people, instead of them dying as a result of their sins, God was satisfied by the sacrifice of a substitute. And the animal is portrayed as dying instead of the community of faith. And in this way, God is both just toward sin and gracious toward sinners. This is how the priest makes atonement for the people, how the people are able to be reconciled to God. And then when he comes out, got the other goat hanging out. And the priest puts his hands, verses 20 through 22, puts his hands on the goat as a picture of and confesses the sins of the community, a picture of the sins passing to the goat. And then goat handler comes in and takes the goat away into the wilderness to be sent off never to return again. That which represents the guilt and condemnation of the people's sin taken to a place where it will never be seen again. That's a great picture. Totally removed, never to return again. And so, this is what happened the Day of Atonement. Third element, it was a sacrifice that would need repeating. This is the only problem. Atonement would be made. But then, in the next week, in the next month, they're sinning again. And so the next year, atonement needs to be made. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and on and on and on and on. Atonement has to be made. And as a result, the effect, yes, it, it was a picture of God's grace toward his people, but the effect was it served, the whole picture served as a reminder of the people's sin. It served to remind them, show them, day after day after day, or month after month, year after year, that they would still need this day of atonement. Once a year, they would need to be for the priest to go in and atone for their sins. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10, the end of the New Testament. You've got, go to Hebrews with me. End of the New Testament there, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. This is what the New Testament says about the Day of Atonement. It was a reminder of the people's sin. It showed them that they, it showed that they were longing for permanent forgiveness. And the Day of Atonement was not bringing permanent forgiveness. Look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The Bible says, this is 
talking about the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, listen, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were constantly reminded that they were separated from God by sins and constantly in need of the Day of Atonement. All of this to point us. Now, remember, this is where what the Old Testament is showing us, pointing us to, are greater realities to come. Greater realities that looking back, we know because God's covenant, God's provision, rather, in the New Testament is, is a glorious picture in light of Leviticus chapter 16. Instead of an annual sacrifice in the Day of Atonement, the New Testament gives us a picture of an abiding sacrifice in the death of Christ. And this is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Just as the tabernacle we looked at last week was a picture, a pattern of a greater reality to come, so the Day of Atonement and all that we're seeing in the book of Leviticus is a pattern of a greater reality to come, an abiding sacrifice in the death of Christ. Look at chapter 9. Go back one chapter in Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 11. Listen to this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here's the picture. New Testament, not a priest entering into an earthly sanctuary. Instead, a priest entering into a heavenly sanctuary. Here's a significant difference. We talked about last week, the tabernacle was a pattern, a copy of a greater reality. Of that which is true. Of a heavenly reality. And so when it comes to Christ and him offering a sacrifice, he did not enter into a temple, a tabernacle made by hands. Look at chapter 9, verse 23. Listen to this. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus entering in, not to holy of holies in a tabernacle, but into the true, glorious, holy presence of God. In humble garments, by the way. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself. And became obedient, went to death on a cross. 
a priest entering a heavenly sanctuary. Not the blood of a spotless animal, but with the blood of a sinless man. You know, the priest had to offer the bulls bull's blood to cover over his own sins. Not so with Jesus. He had no sin in him. End of Hebrews chapter 4, beginning of Hebrews chapter 5. He had no sin in him that needed to be atoned for. And so he goes in on our behalf. Not with the blood of another, but with his own blood. So that in the same way that people in the Old Testament will look to the blood of these sacrifices and entrusting the blood of these sacrifices, they would be reconciled to God and their sins atoned for. Now the picture is with us. And God sees the sin in our lives. He sees in our lives that His law has been broken and the payment for our sin is what? It's death. It's eternal death. He sees the sin in our lives and yet when we trust in the blood of Christ sprinkled over our hearts then when God sees the sin of our lives instead of pouring out death on us he is satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. And the payment for sin is poured out in fullness on him instead of you and me. And his blood is what covers us from the wrath that is due us. And this is a sacrifice that would absolutely and totally not need repeating. It is a sacrifice that would last forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God, symbolizing this sacrifice is complete now, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time, all time, those who are being sanctified. It is a sacrifice that will last forever. And as a result, this is a sacrifice which affects the removal of all our sin. You keep reading there in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 17 says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Remember the scapegoat, the second goat? Sins passed on to him led out into the wilderness to never return again. Brothers and sisters, no matter how deep and dark or dirty your past is, when your sins have been put on Christ, they are removed as far as the east is from the west, never to be counted against you again. 
never to be counted against you again. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am the Lord and I remember your sins no more. No more. It's not that he doesn't. He's just got a bad memory and he forgets. It's that God in his grace has chosen to take that sin. It changed everything in your life last year five years ago or ten years ago, the, that, that thing that if you could go back in your life and redo that or that or this or this, that thing that you just wish was completely gone, brothers and sisters, before the eyes of Almighty Holy God, it is gone. It's, it's gone. It's gone. Our guilt is gone. His blood has been sprinkled across our hearts and you think of it us and our sin, me and my sin, you and your sin, before a holy God, by the blood of Christ, you are not guilty anymore. Our guilt is gone and our conscience is clear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, when the adversary seeks to put that weight of past sin around your neck. Sin from last week, last year, 20 years ago, still carry around with you. Brothers and sisters, don't carry it around with you anymore. You are free. And your guilt is gone. And before God, you are spotless and pure. And you have a position of holiness because of the sacrifice of another. It has been credited to you. Huh. And the, the beauty here, this is what Leviticus is pointing us to. Yes, God is supremely holy. And sin is severely deadly. Sacrifice is therefore necessary. You put all that together, and the end of Leviticus, the cry is for a Savior. And the point of Leviticus is the fourth truth Jesus is worthy. We need Him. He, He is the center of our worship and the satisfaction of our souls. We have a high priest who will continually represent us. One more place in Hebrews. You've got to see this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. You know, I think there are some of us probably many of us at many if not most times when we think about Jesus dying on the cross rising from the grave ascending to the Father and seated at the right hand of the Father that we think Jesus is just like chilling out watching what's going on that is not true do you realize this? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Underline this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
at this moment, Christian, Christ is at the right hand of the Father as an advocate on your behalf. Interceding, living to intercede for you. What does that mean? It means that that this week when you are facing temptation to sin, you have a Savior on high who at that moment is ready to pour out everything you need to overcome that sin. When you face that trial this week that you're not expecting at this moment, and when you get news this week that you had not expected to hear, know this, you have a Savior on high who's interceding on your behalf and ready to pour out the strength and the sustenance that you need in the middle of that news. At every moment of every day, you have a high priest before the Father who is living to intercede for you. This is glorious truth. And the reality is that when that day comes and you breathe your last breath here and you stand before holy God, know this. You trust in him and his blood covers over your heart now. You can know that on that day you have an advocate and you have no reason to fear. No reason to. I was with someone yesterday who was telling me me about Joseph Zone. This is a brother who has trained pastors in uh, persecution in Romania. Uh, He did for years and he would tell these men that he was training who were going into Romania and would almost certainly be martyred. He would tell them, brothers, do not ever forget that when you are martyred for your Lord and you stand before your God in heaven, were he to ask, why should I let you in? Don't think for a second that your answer will be because you were martyred. No, that your answer on that day will be the same answer that we all have. It will be, I have nothing in me. I am trusting in his blood to cover over me. So Christian, live in this. Delight in the fact that your acceptance before God, access to God, is not based on your performance for God but it's based on the sacrifice of another. Say, well, that leads to, okay, then I'll just live however I want now. Absolutely not. This is where the truth of Leviticus 16, Hebrews, shows us that the idea that we can trust Jesus as our Savior, but not follow him as Lord, that is totally bogus. Perfectly preposterous. Why? Because when we realize we have a high priest who is representing us, then we also realize we have a lamb who will eternally reign over us. And our lives are his. They belong to him. They delight in him on a moment-by-moment-by-moment basis. And the thought of sin in light of the sacrifice that has been made is, 
is unbearable and we run from it by the power given to us by our priest. That makes Leviticus totally worth reading.